0: Welcome to More Than Mythos, the podcast exploring the mythological threads that weave us all together. Pun intended for today's episode, I'm Morrigan, and thank you for joining me on this ancient journey to understand our modern world. Today, I'm recording in foggy London for the very first time. For all the lovely people asking, my move here went very smoothly, and I enjoyed an almost entirely empty overnight flight from Boston to London, not that I recommend anyone be traveling right now. The real challenge is actually tackling my jet lag, which honestly kicked my ass since my sleep schedule was already really bad. <laughs> now I just have to adjust from the sleepy suburbs to the sounds of the city, such as 12 hours of construction a day, and my neighbors doing what sounds like jazzercise but is probably something else. It's really nice to be back in my flat with my partner and my two cats, who I'm desperately trying to keep away from the microphone, but we'll see what happens. They, uh, they have a lot to say. But until then, I would like to share with you some really incredible stories revolving around women, weaving, and fate. If you're interested in mythology and folklore, you've almost certainly come across a story that involves spinning or weaving. This theme is so common that we even see it in Disney with Sleeping Beauty and the very famous Brothers Grimm fairy tale of Rumpelstiltskin. But far, far before these tales became so popularized in mainstream media, there were already an astounding number of deities and mythological figures that were depicted as spinners or weavers. And I'm sure it comes as no surprise that they were predominantly women. So, when you learned history in school, you were probably taught about the stark divide between man as hunter and woman as cook, cleaner, weaver, and birthing machine. But in ancient Greece, it wasn't uncommon for men to be weavers too, but it was more likely that you would find a craftsman who specialized in a particular type of weaving, such as sails for a boat, rather than fabric for clothing. And in Egypt, men were often found to be weavers. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote, Not only is the Egyptian climate peculiar to their country, but the Egyptians themselves in their manners and customs seem to have reversed the ordinary practices of mankind. For instance, women attend market and are employed in trade, while men stay at home and do the weaving. In weaving, the normal way is to work the threads of the weft upwards, but the Egyptians work them downwards." But it was the Egyptian goddess Isis who was known for teaching humans to weave. Also a quick note that, obviously, Greek historian Herodotus is probably fairly accurate, and there's some evidence that he probably went to Egypt, but obviously looking at Egypt through a very Roman and westernized lens. Just something to keep in mind. So even though that gender binary between men and women's work is not nearly as strong in most ancient cultures as we were originally led to believe, it is true that both female deities and women in the ancient world were far, far more likely to be involved in the production of textiles. And even to this day, it is largely considered to be women's work, whether or not you agree with that sentiment. Weaving has been a significant way to display cultural and individual achievement, along with storytelling and communication, and also a necessity for clothing for thousands of years. There's evidence that weaving itself dates back to the Paleolithic era, which is 27,000 years ago. That's how significant weaving is. We find textiles in every great civilization for the pretty obvious reason that people wanted to wear clothes to shield themselves from the elements. But depending on your geography, climate, and available material, your textiles were going to be made out of really different fibers. For example, medieval Europe was known for wool, whereas East Asia was known for silk. Textiles held different meanings and use in various cultures, But I think we can all agree that it's not a huge surprise that this incredibly ancient craft developed its own lore over time, to the point that it's now a theme in mythology and folklore. Now, before we really get into some of the figures that embody weaving, we need to add one more element, and that is fate no shortage of deities and assorted figures in mythology that represent or were said to control fate. And there are many male deities of fate or time too. But what's so interesting to me is that there are a ton of female figures that were both weavers and had some affiliation with fate or even death. This is a pretty unique intersection. In mythology, we often see this duality of woman as both bringer of life, and decider of fate, even sometimes being affiliated with the afterlife, too. And I think the easiest way to understand this connection between creation and fate would be this somewhat universal experience. So remember when you were a kid and you got into trouble? While you were trying to hide the pieces of vase or whatever object that you and your siblings broke, your mother would find you and utter that phrase. I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. In this way, if your mom did say this to you, our mothers painted themselves as almost a goddess of both creation and fate, with our very existences in their hands. And this idea of controlling both the beginning and the end of a life is often reflected in female mythological figures and archetypes. The exploration of balance and philosophy and life as a whole definitely comes into play here, but we'll get into that a bit later. Albert Einstein is often credited with coining the phrase the fabric of time, but the concept of the fabric of time can date back to early civilizations like Egypt. And here we encounter, not for the first time, the image of woman as creator. Egypt is famous for its incredibly unique and diverse pantheon of gods, but there is one who was there before the beginning. The goddess Neith was considered to be the mother goddess who invented birth, the creator herself. According to Egyptologist Geraldine Pinch, Neith may actually mean the terrifying one, because of how far her power and influence reached. I mean, she reigned from pre-dynastic Egypt all the way into the Ptolemaic dynasty, which was the very last dynasty before Egypt fell to Rome her reign was so powerful, it was said that she was present at the creation of the world. And in some myths, she gives birth to the sun god Ra, who is often depicted as the most significant god in the Egyptian pantheon. But her worship survived all the way into Roman colonization of Egypt, where she was syncretized with Athena, who was also a goddess of weaving. symbolized many, many things like creation, war, wisdom, water, and funerary practices. She served as one of the four judges of the dead in the afterlife, as well as a guide for the dead to adjust into their new lives. Her symbols included a bow and arrow representing her warring nature, a sword to show her as a just judge for the afterlife, the red crown of Lower Egypt to symbolize her role as creator and mother, And finally, a symbol which is usually shown on her head and is part of her hieroglyph. So this symbol has a little mystery around it. Some historians argue that it is a shield, but some think it looks an awful lot like a loom used for weaving. So we're not 100% sure whether she was originally associated with weaving or whether one of her primary symbols was actually misinterpreted by Romans and then subsequent cultures. But this concept of balance, of life and death, intertwined. In Egypt, this was called Ma'at, which means harmony and balance, and is pervasive in their mythology. Sonith is both a creator of birth, who breathed life into humanity, but is also there to help you as you pass to the other side, which is really quite beautiful to have this figure witness and guide you from before your conception all the way into your final resting place. You may be familiar with Egyptian funerary practices like mummification, which varied widely based on your class and rank in society but usually features the preservation of the body by removing the brain and most of the organs and wrapping the body in linen. The process is incredibly complex, so we're not gonna get too far into it, but it's important to note that funerary practices in Egypt almost always included textiles. So hopefully you can start to see this link between funerary practices, weaving, and a goddess of fate start to form. So one more symbol that Neith was associated with is spiders, who are often considered to be the great weavers of mythology, which is very interesting when you bring in Neith's syncretization with the Greek goddess Athena. So as was very common in the Greek pantheon, the gods loved to give mortals tests or challenges, but in the tale of Athena and Arachne, it may have been Arachne who invited the challenge from Athena, because of her incredibly cocky behavior. So there are varying versions of the story, but we're going to work with the most famous one told by Roman poet Ovid in Metamorphosis. The story goes that Arachne was a shepherd's daughter and had spent her whole life weaving. She became an incredible weaver, but refused to acknowledge that Athena had graced her with this skill It was really common in ancient Greece to believe that if someone had a particularly amazing skill, it was a gift from a god rather than their own personal merit. But Arachne was very boastful and claimed that her weaving skills rivaled that of Athena's. Upon hearing this, Athena was understandably quite upset, and disguised as an old woman visited Arachne and warned her that her skills could never surpass the gods. She advised Arachne to plead for forgiveness so that Athena would spare her soul. Filled with hubris, Arachne simply laughed and insisted that she spoke truth, inviting Athena to challenge her if she disagreed. And it was at this moment that the old woman threw off her disguise and Athena stood in all her glory before Arachne. They immediately began to weave. Athena's weaving was said to depict contests between mortals and gods, where arrogant mortals were punished for thinking themselves equal to the divine. In stark contrast, Arachne wove images of the gods tricking and abusing mortals, including Zeus's infamous sexual escapades of seducing young women through trickery. Athena was livid. Not only did Arachne insult the gods, Her weaving was far more beautiful than Athena's. In a rage, Athena ripped apart Arachne's weaving, and struck her on the head three times. It is said that Arachne then hung herself to escape not only Athena, but her own shame at having disrespected a god. But the Greek gods were not known to be forgiving, even in the afterlife. So Athena sprinkled Arachne's body with a potion from Hecate, a goddess of herbs and sorcery, and Arachne's body began to change. Out fell her hair while her nose and ears disappeared, and her head began to shrink. Her long, slender fingers that once wove such beauty turned into the long, spindly legs of a spider. And so it was written that Athena cursed Arachne and all her children to be weavers for the rest of time. I mean, that was really petty, but I guess I can understand feeling like really snubbed by a mortal who thinks that they're better than you. But still, I mean, like I said, Greek mythology is not known for their forgiveness, that's for sure. But to this day, Arachne is still a really popular figure. She appears in Percy Jackson and even in Marvel comics. So it seems that Athena did successfully intertwine Arachne's fate with weaving. So this is a rather abstract connection between fate and weaving, but a much more obvious one within the realm of Greek mythology would be the Fates, also known as the Moirai. As the personification of fate and destiny, they were usually depicted as three elderly sisters sitting around a spinning wheel. If you've ever seen the Disney Hercules movie, you'll probably remember these haggard sisters in their tattered cloaks cackling maniacally and snipping at the threads of human lives with these absolutely massive shears. In the movie, they also share one eyeball which they pop in and out of their skulls and pass around so they can see into the past, present, and future. So if you haven't seen the Disney Hercules, it's honestly one of the better Disney movies in my opinion. It's pretty entertaining, if inaccurate. And you know, it's a movie, so of course they were pretty sensationalized as figures. But a more realistic depiction of the fates would probably be like elderly grandmothers, spinning away their quiet, quaint life. Maybe they'll make some tea or stop for a chat, you know, pretty leisurely. Sometimes they were even described as mechanical or dispassionate. For them, being the personification of fate was their fate. It was their job. It was their position to spin the destiny of the world. So I think they were far less malicious than often depicted in modernity. So this trio is composed of Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropos. Clotho was responsible for spinning the thread of each person's life. Lachesis measured the length of each thread, therefore determining someone's lifespan. And finally, Atropos was the one who cut the thread, foretelling an individual's death. Most Greek traditions say that Zeus was actually the father of the fates, which is fascinating that one's children would spin their own demise. Some say that the goddess of necessity is mother to the fates, reinforcing this ancient but very common idea that fate is part of the natural order, and it is a necessity to maintain order in the universe. One of the primary stories that features the Fates is the tale of Persephone. After she journeys to the underworld, the Fates are the ones who decree that Persephone must remain there since she has tasted the fruit of that world, the pomegranate. But for anyone wondering if there was a way to escape these prophecies, there certainly was not. You could beg or bargain, or another person could maybe interfere, but you yourself could not alter fate. It was said there was only one way to oppose your own fate, and that was to take your own life. So these cute old ladies may not be as harmless as they look, and their legacy certainly isn't. Witches that prophesy fate appear in a whole host of stories in folklore with the most recognizable one being the witches from the originally French folktale turned Disney hit Sleeping Beauty. I always find it so funny to study mythology, because when you really look at a lot of mythological figures, you'll start to notice their reincarnations in a lot of media, like very little of mythology is original. There's so much of it that we see these overlaps. And when I started working on this episode, I actually had a little light bulb go off in my brain that said, I bet this relates to Sleeping Beauty somehow. And then I like shooed the idea away, thinking it was like a bit of a reach. But here we are, and it totally makes sense in this context that the Fates were probably the inspiration for other figures from our childhood, even if their image was a bit warped or exaggerated. But, you know, we love the drama. But far, far to the north, another incarnation of this idea was already in full swing in Norse mythology. The Norms, or Nornir, were female beings said to control fate, and I recently discovered that though it's spelled N-O-R-N, it's pronounced with an M on the end, so NORM. So I've only been saying that wrong for 23 years, but you know, a nice humbling moment for me that I still have a lot to learn about mythology. But the norms are largely considered to be the most powerful figures in all of Norse mythology because they controlled the fate of even the gods, and this is a really interesting aspect of how powerful this idea of fate was and is in many cultures and many religions. Fate is something that absolutely no one escapes in any cultures, and a really consistent theme is also that the more that you try to escape your own fate, the faster you reach it, basically. And I find it really fascinating that both the norms and the moire are depicted as being created by gods. It seems really counterintuitive to me to bring your own demise into existence, but this again harkens back to this Egyptian idea of ma'at, of balance and harmony. This idea that fate is a necessity, not a burden. But while some of the norms were said to be created by gods, some considered them to be from elves or dwarves. The mystery that shrouds their creation pervades their entire existence. In Norse mythology, they're often considered to be their own category of being, neither god nor man nor mystical creature, which I suppose reflects the mysterious nature of fate itself quite nicely. But unlike the fates, which are always depicted as three sisters, The norms are not as stagnant. In the Norse poem, I'm going to pronounce this horribly, so I apologize in advance, Fafnismal, there are a great many number of norms. In fact, no one seems to be able to agree on exactly how many there were. But in another tale, Völuspá, there are exactly three. And their names in this account are incredibly symbolic. The first is Urd, which means the past. The second is Verdandi, which can translate to what is presently coming into being. And the third is Skuld, which means what shall be. I mean, their names alone are incredibly prophetic and quite eerie. And if their names don't give you chills, their home certainly will. They were said to live in a great hall by the well of fate, underneath Yggdrasil, which is the Great Tree that serves as the focal point for the Norse Otherworld. Some art depicts them almost like guardians of the Great Tree. But what does all of this have to do with weaving? Though there are a great number of parallels between the Fates and the Norms, the way that the Norms go about constructing fate is not always as clear-cut as the Fates. There are lots of different versions of how the Norms do their work, but the most common depictions are casting wooden lots, carving symbols such as runes into wood, and, you guessed it, weaving. They were often thought to appear after a child's birth to foretell its lifespan and weave it accordingly, which, big surprise, also sounds freakishly similar to the Sleeping Beauty witches. And I want to share this description with you, of the Norms, from one of the poetic Eddas. "'Twas night in the dwelling, and Norms there came, who shaped the life of the Lofty One. They bade him most famed of fighters all, and best of princes ever to be. Mightily wove they the web of fate, while Braylon's towns were trembling all. And there the golden threads they wove, and in the moon's hall fast they made them." But I think it's worth noting that they weren't truly feared, it was more like highly respected. In fact, it was really common to serve a special type of gruel called Norm Porridge to women who had just given birth. But just as they were not feared, they were also not worshipped. They were simply an accepted and revered presence. But if you are looking for a goddess of fate in the Norse pantheon, Look no further than the goddesses Frigg and Freya, who were sometimes considered to have originated from the same figure. But just to make talking about them easier, because there's a lot more information pertaining to Freya, we're just going to go with that name. And Freya is definitely not a mysterious creature in Norse mythology. She is a prevalent member of the Venir tribe, but an honorary member of the Aesir and also one of the highest ranking goddesses in the entire pantheon. She symbolizes love, fertility, beauty, and war, but we're going to hone in on a particular type of Norse magic that she practiced called Seder. Seder is pre-Christian magic or shamanism that involved not only understanding the course of fate, but also working within it to create change, which is very different than how we see even the norms. Freya was sometimes called a vulva, or a seer or sorceress that could take the Seder magic and apply it to anything imaginable. But the process of using this magic was usually depicted as Freya, or another vulva, symbolically weaving new events into existence. As mortals, these seers were sometimes exalted and sometimes persecuted, so their social standing seemed to fluctuate throughout time and is depicted quite differently in various sagas. In one story, Freya is said to possess falcon feathers that allowed the holder to shift their form into that of a falcon, which was a form of satyr, to weave oneself into something new. So we have quite a lot of surviving information about the Norse pantheon and and Freya, but a similar figure exists in Eastern Slavic lore. It's just a little harder to get good information on her because of Christianization. Mokos is a goddess of protecting women and children, and also spinning. It was thought that her influence extended into the cosmic plane, meaning that she also controlled destiny and could cut a human life short if she so desired. She, like Freya, was also depicted as a sorceress, even after she was syncretized into Saint Petka. I really wish that I had more to share with you about Mokos, but not only is the information about her really hard to find, it's even more difficult to know what's accurate and what's been tampered with by Christianity but I still wanted to give Mokos an honorable mention because Slavic lore is deeply underappreciated and she is technically a goddess of weaving and fate. So now we have an Egyptian goddess of creation, a spider curse, some spooky Greek grandmothers, mysterious personifications of time, and a divine sorceress. But for our very last figure we're going to explore, we're going to turn our gaze further west to the indigenous people of North America. Now, if you'll remember in Greece, there was a pretty negative connotation with being turned into a spider. But the Hopi and Dine, or Navajo tribes, clearly did not see spiders with the same distaste that the Greeks did. In fact, it is considered bad luck to kill a spider in some Native American communities. And this is because of Spider-Woman, or Spider-Grandmother, depending on who you talk to. Spider-Woman was an incredibly wise and powerful teacher who sang the world into existence and formed humans out of clay and saliva. For every child she created, she attached a fine thread to their head so she could always be connected to them and they would always be connected to her wisdom. Her web symbolizes the matrix of existence and society. She is at her core a creation goddess, but also a teacher of pottery, weaving, and ceremonial magic. Apparently, it's common for weavers in these cultures to rub their hands with spider webs to try and absorb some of Spider Woman's divine skills. And again, we see this really incredible intersection between weaving and magic. But my favorite fact about Spider-Woman is that she was thought to be responsible for the stars in the sky. Spider-Woman took a web that she had woven, laced it with dew, and threw it up into the sky. The light caught the dewdrops, and that's how the stars were created. Which is honestly such an absolutely beautiful story. But the concept of Spider-Woman predates the Hopi or the Dine. There's evidence of an early version of her in pre-Columbian era, during the Maya, Olmec, and pre-Toltec civilizations, but we see her there as the Great Goddess, or Teotihuacan Spider Woman. And just for timeline reference, this was about 200 BCE, which is full swing of the Roman Empire, I wanted to note that because these mythologies and histories are often portrayed as if they're functioning on not only totally different timelines, but different universes. And they really weren't. These ancient Mesoamerican cultures were pretty much equally as advanced, and their legacy is just as significant as the Roman Empire. We just aren't taught that in school. Okay, that's my rant about school history programs, but honestly y'all, I just think this concept of weaving in fate is incredible, and the fact that we see it in so many cultures is mind-blowing to me. For anyone wondering, there is a lot of mythology about weaving in East Asian lore as well, But there isn't that same association with fate as there is in more western and indigenous american lore. But it makes sense that it would be so prevalent in general. Of course you would have deities that reflect this ancient craft of spinning and weaving. It was predominantly associated with women, though not 100%, so most of the spinning or weaving figures are female. And a lot of women in mythology tend to reflect this idea of women as creators. Tie in this ancient belief of balance, and boom, you've got a whole host of female mythological figures that represent both weaving and fate. I just think that's so cool, and I wanted to share with you this quote. What these tales of weaving in mythology have in common is the ability to manufacture reality. Whether it's Neath creating the world into being, The Norms weaving the fabric of fate, or the Lady of Shalat recreating the world anew. Weaving becomes the supreme craft of creation. And we didn't really get into the Lady of Shalat, but she's a really cool folklore figure to check out if you're looking for even more mythological figures of weaving. But her connection with weaving and fate is a lot more like weaving her own destiny rather than weaving other people's destinies. But I think this quote is just really beautiful, that this very complex craft that is often looked down upon by men because it's not hunting or fighting, is truly the glue of the world. It is both the beginning and the end, the past, present, and future, without which no one could hunt or fight or do anything manly. And I really love this resurgence I've seen in the past few years of lots of women taking up embroidery or sewing or making carpets and tapestries. I think it's incredible to reconnect with such an old and important craft. Spinning and weaving in Celtic culture is still thought to have a lot of significance. And sometimes family members Will engrave protection spells on whorls used in spinning. There's so much space for weaving and other women's work quote unquote to be really subversive too. A lot of feminist artists like Faith Ringgold and Miriam Shapiro have made women's work an integral part of their artistic practice to try and launch crafts like weaving out of the low art category and get them the recognition that they deserve in museums. And not just natural history museums, like high art with a capital A museums. And I think that's really important to have these crafts that have been dismissed for so, so long finally have their time in the light. Textiles have been an integral part of our mythologies and societies as a whole since basically the beginning of humans. So I hope that this episode was as exciting for you as it was for me because this concept really gets me. It feels so moving to connect these dots. Thank you for joining me today and I really hope you'll tune in to the next episode. We'll be focusing on some East Asian lore which we haven't really got into yet, And as always, thank you so much to everybody on Patreon who really makes all of this possible. I appreciate you guys so, so much. All right, well, I'll see you next time on More Than Mythos, and thanks for tuning in.